Hey everyone, welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we share Black feminist perspectives and close read pop culture and other social topics that affect Black folks. I'm Alyssa and I use she, her, hers pronouns. Hey y'all, I'm Brendan and I use she, her, hers pronouns as well. We have quite the episode in store for you today. We'll be talking about reproductive justice, dispossession, killing the black body by Dorothy Roberts. And we have our first guest of the season. I don't know what that was. Uh, assistant <laughs> professor. It's like clucking. Molly. <laughs> cluck, cluck, cluck. Like a chicken. Um, <laughs> like the true bird I am. Um, the assistant professor, Molly Collins. And she will be on with us in the final segment to chat about what's at stake for black birthing people in this post Roe v. Wade world. Although, as you'll learn or already know, black women and non-men have always been extra Roe as in outside of its application. And yesterday, or on Sunday, for those of you, for basically everybody, because we're recording on Monday, you all will get Mm -hmm. this on Wednesday, we hit the 100-day milestone of the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. So tomorrow, Thursday, October 6th, is the National Day of Student Action for Reproductive Justice. And so we wanted to make this podcast episode as our contribution in support and to reaffirm that we believe in the right to bodily autonomy, to choose or choose not to birth, and to parent in safe and supportive community. Absolutely. So before we give too much away, we would like to just note that creating episodes like these would not be possible without the support of listeners just like you. Like you. And so the best way, like you. The best way to support us is by becoming a patron where you can access the ZD community, speak to us personally, and see exclusive videos and audio from our episodes. So head on over to patreon.com slash Zora's Daughters to learn more. And another way you can support us is by leaving a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, following us on social media, and sharing our episodes with your friends, your families, your students, your neighbors, your enemies, that person at work that you're like, girl, you need to learn something. I mean, just (laughs) everybody. (laughs) And we cannot forget the merch. Okay. People have been loving the notebooks and the mugs. Both feature our new podcast cover image that was designed last year. And I mean, really, you all have been taking notes and sipping tea with us for the last two years and a little bit, metaphorically. So why not do it literally? Why not? If you've forgotten all of these links and accounts, just head to zorasdaughters.com where you can find our shop, social media, transcripts, and other goodies. Good, good. And if you haven't, goodies? goodies? My <laughs> goodies. goodies or... My goodies. <laughs> my okay, goodies. My, not my, my goodies because these goodies are engaged, but... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. My goodies might be on up if these prices keep going up. But anyway, so if... <laughs> If you haven't already, we recommend listening to Season 1, Episode 6, Deathcraft Country, where we talk about the history of birth control movements and eugenics, as well as the mass hysterectomies and ICE detention. And yes, that was two years ago. Mm. Time flies and goes around in circles. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get into it. What's the word? Our word for today is dispossession, which I'm actually really kind of surprised we haven't talked about already. 
Me too. I, I did a quick check when I was writing this up, and we've only used it five times on the podcast, which is probably 10,000 times less than most anthropologists these days. Yeah, it's a really sexy concept right now, and we may have only used it a handful of times, but we've talked about it in many different ways. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I was texting you about this. This uh, I was in a dissertation <laughs> writing group with... A diverse group of people and one white gay was trying to make an argument that black people in the 1920s um, were being dispossessed by giving their money up for money for movie tickets. That was his argument in his chapter and his dissertation. That was a form of dispossession. And so we just we're here to say clear the air, clear the room that dispossession does not simply mean that you lose something. Right. And you can't be dispossessed technically if you're getting something in exchange. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, We're going to start with the basic definition of dispossession. Right. Which (laughs) is that this (laughs) dispossession is, quote, the action of depriving someone of land, property or other possessions. And so do you think that's all we would need to say about the matter? But then we wouldn't be anthropologists because all we do is talk. Right. So we got to do Talk, talk, talk. (laughs) We got to talk about the history, right? We got to talk about the context, and we got to talk about the usage. Exactly. So first, you know, we're going to park over with our old friend and German philosopher, Karl Marx, or who I call Marxy Marx. Marxy Marx? Marxy Marx. (laughs) Marxy Marx and the Funky Bunch. (laughs) Is that a real? Well, Marky Mark. You know Mark Wahlberg, oh, yes. Marky Mark Marky and the Funky Mark. Bunch. Oh gosh, well Marky Mark Paul and Marx. the Marky Marxy Marks and the Fooky Bunch. Oh snap! We just started a whole new band. Okay, we did of philosophers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well actually, I think we have to start with our wonderful Scottish economist Adam Smith. So before Marx, Adam Smith argued that capitalism arose from workers specializing in particular aspects of the labor process and some people being hard workers and good savers. So he called Mm. this original accumulation. Marx was like, "Mm, no, a whole system of exploitation doesn't arise from some people saving their pennies. And so he introduced the term primitive accumulation. He argued that you have to take into account violence, war, enslavement, and colonialism in order to understand the accumulation of land and wealth. In Capital Volume 1, he writes, quote, The discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of blackskins, signaled the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. These idyllic proceedings are the chief moments of, pri- of primitive accumulation. Now, you saw even Marxy Marx has his critics. I might be one of them, low-key. But uh, Rosa <laughs> Luxembourg, who is a Polish-German revolutionary, and she was abducted and assassinated in 1919. Yeah, she was pretty anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism. I wrote, I read some of her work for my exams. 
And she, wrote, she actually wrote an essay about Martinique after the volcanic explosion that annihilated an entire town in 1902. And the gist of the, es of the essay was, all of the rest of you colonizers will burn, on, burn in hell on earth one day too. <laughs> Very loosely paraphrasing, but that was the gist of it. <laughs> wow, now she's a prophet and a bad bitch. Okay, girls. <laughs> I love that. Um, she critiqued Marx's assertion that workers would be buying commodities from the bourgeoisie and helping turn, helping them turn a profit. Right, so goods would become unaffordable. Therefore, capitalists needed to sell their goods in order to, in other economies, to make any money. And she argued that expansion is the crux of accumulation. Capitalism needs to constantly expand into non-capitalist areas in order to access resources, markets, and cheap labor. However, this was self-defeating because as a non-capitalist economies became capitalist, right, there would be no more markets to sell into, and then capitalism would break down. Dun, dun, dun. Hence, all y'all burning. Don't literally burning. We are literally burning <laughs> today. Um. <laughs> have, we meet, have we reached max accumulation? I mean, there are a lot of critiques of, of Luxembourg's work, but this is where we're going to come to dispossession because enter David Harvey and he's, he's working through her work. He's a little bit recuperating her work. David Harvey, contemporary Marxist geographer and drawing on Rosa Luxemburg's work, he proposes the concept of accumulation by dispossession. He argues that depriving people of the land and public assets through privatization financialization, manipulating crises, and state redistribution plays an integral role in the bourgeoisie gaining power and oppressing the working class. Accumulation is no longer just about production, it's about trading and exchanging asset values. So I think we all know, we might know, America loves privatizing public goods, and they definitely mm -hmm. love manipulating a crisis. Definitely mm -hmm. love that. In increasing increasing uh what is it called interest rates stuff like that disaster capitalism love it it's like the backbone of the united states so typically what they'll say is by privatizing this public good it's going to be more efficient it's going to be less corrupt it's going to create more jobs etc etc Healthcare is a really great example of that so rather than deciding everyone deserves a quality uh quality accessible health care the best kind of healthcare is reserved for those with the most resources. America chooses freedom or liberty. That is the freedom to choose your provider over equality. So this is the history and the weight of that word dispossession. It carries a ton of that history and weight with it when people write it in their journal articles, even though they'll just be like, and the dispossession of this, the dispossession, the dispossession. of black people in, in movie theaters by buying tickets. Um, yeah. I don't think that he was... <laughs> talking about alienation Definitely was not talking about and labor you know, and land but actual capitalist exchange right but <laughs> yeah and so dispossession has its histories and its roots definitely in black studies and indigenous studies and um sometimes those coalesce right sometimes black studies and indigenous studies come together and in their understanding of dispossession and sometimes they diverge um, but I won't get into the politics of that today. <laughs> but if you're like wondering, like, what does that have to do with reproductive justice? We're going to connect the dots for you. Okay. 
we can be materially and ontologically dispossessed, right? Through chattel slavery is the um, is the example of that, right? How do you turn a person into an object, right? You dispossess them of their personhood. And so black birthing people have historically been dispossessed of their reproductive rights and even their access to motherhood. And we'll get into that later. Very soon, in fact, very soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So precisely, I think Sadia Hartman said that dispossession uh, tethers us to the event of slavery. So it's Mm -hmm. something that's inherited. It's passed on from generation to generation. And that dispossession was codified in Partis Sequitur Ventrum, which is the law of slavery that says that which is brought forth follows the womb. That is, the child will inherit the status of the mother. Which is something that we discussed in our Afro-Pessimism episode, which was season one, episode 14, if you want to hear more about that wonderful Latin term. <laughs> and that's right, we did. It's actually one of our most listened to episodes. So, Oh, no, it's, you, our, it's the most listened it's to. It's the, oh, yeah, the, the most, most listened to. Period. Everybody said we need to learn about dispossession <laughs> and blackness. That's right. And Afro-Pessimism. <laughs> Heard you. Afro-pessimism, period. Let us know. <laughs> send us a message. Let us know on social media um, if you want us to do a part two to the Afro-pessimism episode. You can hit us up at Zora's Daughters on Instagram or Zora's underscore daughters on Twitter. Just live tweet this while you're listening. Okay. Yes. That's it. Someone so, someone told us that we need to do more reminding people to send us messages during the episode. So <laughs> please do. here we are. You want we want to hear from you. So we're going to go ahead and transition into what we're reading today. So Alyssa, what are we reading today? Ah, We are reading The Meaning of Liberty in Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty by Dorothy Roberts. I'm really excited that we're reading this because we've talked about it a few times. I think it kind of came back into vogue for certain folks. Uh, in like 20, I want to say 2017, it came back into Vogue. It never left Vogue for many of us, however. Yes. But now we get to dive in. Dorothy Roberts is the Penn Integrates Knowledge Professor with a joint appointment in the Department of Sociology and the Law School at the University of Pennsylvania. Her path-breaking work in law and public policy focuses on urgent contemporary issues in health, social justice, and bioethics, especially as they impact the lives of women, children, and African Americans. Her major books include Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families, and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World, which was published this year, Fatal Invention, How Science, Politics, and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st Century, published in 2011, Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, published in 2002, And of course, what we're reading today, Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty, which was published in 1997. She is the author of more than 100 articles and book chapters, as well as a co-editor of six books on such topics as constitutional law and women and the law. Wow. Name, I don't know, can you name a more prolific, prolific scholar? Yeah, no, I mean, this is cool. This is our second legal law scholar that we're reading on the podcast. Yeah, that is true. So here we are. Channeling Du Bois' famous question, how does it feel to be a problem? 
Roberts analyzes the problem of black procreation, the way black motherhood and birthing bodies have been historically and contemporaneously pathologized by white America in order to justify racist archetypes and control childbearing. She shows that policies purported to help black communities actually reinforce the stereotypes that black people themselves and not racial inequality are the reason for their, our subjugation. Mm -hmm. With this text, Roberts makes three overarching assertions. Racial oppression is exercised on black women's bodies through controlling their reproductive decisions. This control has shaped how we understand reproductive liberty in the US. And finally, we must expand our understanding of reproductive liberty to account for racial oppression. And so there's something really interesting happening here. And it might be a mark of the time that Roberts uh, published this, right? But this, her insistence on using the word liberty and, and working within that category, which is something that I think we'll talk about uh, with our guests possibly mm -hmm. as well. Um, and so what you, what we might hear these days, right, are reproductive justice, right? And so reproductive justice might be reaching more towards what Roberts was gesturing towards um, in, in her work. But what is it, right? We keep throwing this word around. Reproductive justice, uh, as defined by Sister Song, which is a women of color reproductive justice collective, understands reproductive justice as a human right that is about access and not choice because there is no choice when there is no access. And it's not just concerned with abortion. So abortion is critical, but access to contraception, comprehensive sex education, STI prevention and care, alternative birth options, adequate prenatal and pregnancy care, domestic violence assistance, adequate wages to support our families, safe homes and more are also necessary. So the chapter that we're reading today helps us rethink the meaning of reproductive freedom in order to account for what Roberts names as equality, but I would say um, she's actually trying to gesture past that uh, in mm -hmm. a way, right? And so she gives us another way of improving life for black people that actually, if, if we're thinking intersectionally, right, would improve things for everyone. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing about her working through the framework of liberty is, of course, she's a legal scholar. And, mm -hmm. You know, she's looking at the Constitution and, and what liberty means within that context. But, mm -hmm. you know, we'll we'll get into that a little bit, even though we are no constitutional experts. We are not. And especially <laughs> not me, because I'm like, what constitution? <laughs> we have a charter of rights and freedoms. I know a little bit about that one. Um, and we can talk about that because people argue that abortion actually is enshrined in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada, but some people say no. Anyhow, this chapter is a critical interpretation of the meanings of freedom, liberty, in the legal sense, and how, when not accompanied by a racial analysis, precludes equality. Mm. Additionally, the liberal reproductive liberty movements Roberts is talking about they were interested in maintaining the arrangements that made it possible for them to have choice, to have the choice, specifically abortion. But individual choice does not guarantee access. So when it comes to reproductive liberty, Roberts explains that liberty is understood negatively. This is in the legal constitutional context. Not negative as in bad, 
but that we have the right against state interference. So this is opposed to a positive right that would, for example, provide the resources needed to support procreative activities. Mm. It means that the state cannot legally enforce birth control on racialized groups, for an as an example, under threat of imprisonment, but they can constrain them into it, like by tying access to benefits um, to having next plan on. Is that what it's called? Next plan on? The, mm. That birth control implant. So you have to, in order to receive your benefits, or in order to receive more benefits, you have to have this kind of um, semi-permanent birth control inserted into your body. In this structure, where liberty is valued over equality, choice is reserved for those with the means to afford it, and we accept and expect vast social inequities. Roberts writes, quote, inequality is the price we pay to have freedom. Liberty rests on the assumption that the individual's rights and, and autonomy take precedence over social justice. We see how capitalism, liberalism, and anti-Black racism form a web where having the right to choose means that some folks, those who are wealthy and privileged, will always have more choices than those who are not wealthy. Right. And for Black women who are demonized and denigrated, right, and that actually forms the structure of the legal system... Uh, in which we live, under which we live, oof, um, <laughs> uh, their choices are limited by stereotypes in government action and inaction. Mm -hmm. So black women have this unique position in which is seen as moral and just to limit their reproductive choices. And I'd like to, I like to say kind of personally that Poor folks and black folks have to make decisions and not choices, right? We don't get that kind of, like, to have a choice is a rich white kind of thing, right? Mm. We got to make decisions. Um, also, would like to flag that in 1997, so some of y'all weren't even a speck in your parents' <laughs> eyes, right? Roberts was talking about the fears about the Supreme Court overruling uh, Roe v. Wade, right? So that like reproductive justice activists were mobilizing 25 years ago, right? So just like today, right, that mobilization was motivated uh, by the threat of affluent women losing their reproductive rights rather than participating in the ongoing organizing for equal rights and protections for all. And not only that, but Roberts explains that the movement's attention to the right to an abortion was simultaneously narrow and large enough right, to overshadow the needs of black women. And so these racist discourses that cast black women as unfit mothers or really to name them as only fit to mother right, white women's children right, also impair their choices, not only for abortion, but other aspects of reproduction and parenting. And in other chapters of the book, she talks about um, how access to IVF, um, which is intro, in vitro fertilization and other kind of reproductive technologies are specifically um, geared towards white affluent people who are able to reproduce in that way, right? So at the same time that you have this kind of legal action and inaction to discourage black women from reproducing, right? You have legal action and inaction through the framework of liberty to encourage white folks to reproduce, right? And under the name of, quote, individual choice, right? The right to choose as an individual. 
And so Robert explains that, quote, addressing the particular concerns of black women helps to expand our vision of reproductive freedom to include the full scope of what it means to have control over one's reproductive life. See, like, so if y'all had just been thinking intersectionally 25, 35 years ago, we would not be where we are today. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> I know, it's a, it's a big ask. It's a huge lift. Mm-hmm. What can we say? <laughs> but of course, I mean, what that means is attention to Black women's experiences demand that we reject this preoccupation with abortion rights and turn our attention to a broader vision of reproductive freedom and reproductive justice. Liberty, drawn from the U.S. Constitution, does not guarantee social justice, access, or choice. It does not undo the infrastructure that makes it so that some people do not have a choice in the first place and others have, and, you know, have to make decisions. Mm-hmm. I think her closing line is especially black feminist. So she says, quote, my objective is not to deny wealthy people's options because others do not have them. Rather, my vision of liberty seeks to ensure that dispossessed and disempowered groups share the means to be self-determining and valued members of society, end quote. So it's about expansion and why some people receive that as foreclosing or encroaching upon their rights, I will never know. I mean, I will say, (laughs) I will say, Raise my finger up and like they do in the church. Um, right? Is that for when you have some, to go to the bathroom or something? Yeah. Sure, I, let me just interject quickly. <laughs> that one of the things that I found interesting about like her working within these frameworks, right, is is really, and something that I think I'll also bring up with, with our guests too, is how we can how we as black folks need to start pushing outside of the language that's been given to us. Um, so rather than saying retalking Liberty or refashioning Liberty to include us when we know that it was written without us, right? What are other words or things that we can reach towards that help us actually define what we're looking for? Um, but of course this was written in 1997 and it's for legal lawyers. They don't like to push the boundaries too much because it's gonna co- it's gonna cost them a paycheck. So, yeah, I'm like, that's one of the things I've been thinking about lately. But as well, uh-huh. uh, so that takes us to our final segment, which is what, 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 what in the world? Oh. What in the world's going on? What's going on? Today we have with us. A friend, a love, um, my world, and uh, she'll get that when she listens to this. <laughs> <laughs> um, professor Molly Collins, and Molly Collins is assistant professor in the Department of Critical Race, Gender, and Cultural Studies, CRGC, at American University. Her research areas include Black motherhood studies, Black archival studies. 20th and 21st century literature and art, medical humanities, digital technology, and reproductive health and justice. She is 
a practicing birth, postpartum, and pregnancy termination doula, and a trained perinatal and infant loss advocate with the Room Room in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Collins is currently preparing her book manuscript, Scrap Theory, Reproductive Injustice in the Black Feminist Imagination, which is under contract with OSU Press 2024, which creates new methodologies to investigate contemporary formations of Black maternal dispossession within the confines of radical documentation and archiving. So welcome to the Zoom studio, Dr. Collins. Hey, welcome. Okay. Well, welcome to the Zoom studio. Dr. Collins, it's so wonderful to see you on this lovely uh, Monday evening. (laughs) Hi. Hi, Alyssa. Hi, Brendan. Hi. There's a lot of air. Air sign energy in the room. We have a fellow Aquarius for all yes, the haters. What a sad move. So watch out. Watch out. <laughs> um, we're so excited to have you on. And yes, yeah, so we're just going to get started and start with our first question, which is what does reproductive justice mean to you? Okay, so these are really, all of your questions are great. And yeah, this is a good one. I think this is a question that my answer changes a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think for me, I follow, in the academic sense, I think I follow the Black feminist tenet, right, of Loretta Ross, which is reproductive justice is the right to not have kids. It's the right to have kids. And if I want kids to raise them safely into adulthood. For me, I think it's also my right to reproduce what I would like when I want. And I think that's something that people forget a lot about reproductive justice or just reproductive, our reproductive capacity in general is that we're all reproducing all the time, Mm -hmm. whether that's like cultural mores or reproducing institutions, family, toxicity, we're reproducing a lot all the time. And so we're all reproductive subjects. And for me, reproductive justice is really understanding how you are a reproductive subject and how that how you move in the world and how you affect other people based on your reproductive labor. Wow, that is such an expansive definition. I don't think I would have ever thought about reproducing all of those different things in, in that way. Is something that, but that's something that is important for us to seek justice for and around. Um, you know, however you define justice and I was telling Alyssa earlier that um one of the things that I really am starting to dislike strongly I won't use the word hate is is the ways that a lot of black people have to work within these frameworks like justice and liberty and equality etc that are already kind of democracy that are already built on our exclusion and so we're always trying to like write ourselves or think ourselves into it um and so I like I like your expansion of reproductive justice to include all of these different things. And I'm like also thinking, okay, what if we could rename that as something, make it black, just rename it. Just let's get rid of, you know, the language that's been given to us. I wonder what that would be. That's not something that, you know, I'm like posing as a question to you, but it's something I've just mm-hmm. really been thinking about. Well, you all have been reading Dorothy Roberts, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really like the thrust 
or what that what she's writing <clears throat> between the lines right in that last chapter when she's asking us like well what is liberty because mm -hmm. if liberty is always within this grammar of justice and institution and like the state well then how does that even apply right mm -hmm. and so I would pose and like my question always to my students is we're constantly operating in this grammar of unfreedom like well, this is what black people can't do. Look at what that white person did. I can't believe Brett Favre. What, like, look at what these white people are doing to us. I can't believe they put another black woman in jail for an abortion. Like we have all this grammar for the shit we're in, right? And how the violation of our reproductive liberties. But if we really want to talk about what's on the other side of that, it's like, well, what's the grammar for black reproductive freedom? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't even have a grammar for that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, Roberts is talking about in the in the fourth chapter, like when she's quoting Patricia Williams too, is like, yeah, well, how do we talk about dispossession and talk about our reproductive freedom at the same time? Like, we don't even know how to do that. We're not even there yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what does it mean to like yeah, have freedom or hold freedom when you can't even really have a hold yourself, right? In this in this grammar of unfreedom that you're talking about. So, yeah, that's really. Mm -hmm. And so you do. I'm. I'm going to just like, you know, toot your horn here. You wear so many different hats because of your super stellium in Capricorn. You always got to keep a bag. I I love that about you. Um, <laughs> and right. So you are a doula for birth, postpartum, pregnancy termination. You're also an advocate for perinatal and infant loss. Um, and I just... You're a mother as well, right? So you're also like operating through all of these different hats. And I'm wondering for you, when the decision uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade was announced, right? What did you feel? And then what did you think was like at stake for black birthing people at, in that moment? Um, That's a great question. Yeah. So yeah, I do a lot of labor. I do a lot of like reproductive labor, but I think you know, this Roe v. Wade moment is similar to these other spectacles of our era, mm -hmm. right? Like, not to reduce, like, the murder of George Floyd, but that was a large spectacle for our country. The election of Trump was a spectacle, right? All of these, like, these moments that bookmark injustice for us. And Roe v. Wade felt no different. Um, the overturn of Roe v. Wade felt no different for me in that respect, especially since, right, like, I study all, I know that there's Black people in jail, like, literally right now mm -hmm. in the same state 30 miles away from me because like they googled how to have a medicalized abortion mm -hmm. i mean like what is going to change but i think then like really think about it what's really scary for black people is we have to continue to think about how the overturn of roe v wade just simply allows the state to do more nefarious mm -hmm. things right so like we have southern states like missouri which already confiscate the records of everybody's periods um, at their one, the Planned Parenthood in the state, right? They have spreadsheets of people's periods to keep track of those things. We know in Mississippi, the statute of, well, actually in the U.S., like federally, the statute of limitations on murder, there's no statute, right? If you commit a crime when you're 15, you can be tried when you're 70. But like, we're, we're going to see an extension of the statute of limitations for things like um, seeking an abortion. Mm -hmm. Right. So even if I have a 15 year old who's alive and kicking and doing amazing things, if I initially sought to have an abortion when I was pregnant with that 15 year old, I can be tried for child endangerment, attempted murder. 
right? Like these are these extensions in Southern states and just most states where I grew up, like Wisconsin, that they're actively trying to enact Mm -hmm. um, so that because it's not enough to put black people in jail now, we have to retroactively punish black people for their reproductive freedoms in the past. Yeah. So generationally, we're, we're seeing people being put on trial, both culturally and then also legally. Yeah. This brings me to just one of the articles that you wrote about the period tracking apps and, you know, just like telling people delete the apps off your phone because that data is sold. That data is sold to governments. Mm-hmm. That data is sold to people who can you know, put you in jail for missing your period and can call that a miscarriage. Um, right. And that can mm-hmm. be something that you could be tried for, attempted murder, um, or child endangerment, as you named. And then also just uh, just as a general warning to folks who, even if you are in a state that, you know, abortion is legal, to think about and be very careful about what you share publicly on social media and also who you tell about these kind of procedures. Because um, we're going to move into a space where if someone knows someone who has had an abortion, right, you could be held mm-hmm. Uh, criminally liable or legally liable and so that's just a just a warning I I was just thinking I mean based you know building on on what you were saying it made me think of Chrissy Teigen recently coming out and saying oh it wasn't it wasn't just a a loss of a child that I had it was we're gonna call it what it is it was an abortion and I just was trying to think about what what is that going to do for for like abortion laws, what is that going to do for, what does that do for her? And does that actually help anybody by her announcing that? Mm. Oh, sorry, I'm not laughing. <laughs> Are you laughing? <laughs> what? Okay. I was a little bit, just because, well, just think about Chrissy Teigen helping people, that just made me laugh. But that's that's all, that's it. Yeah, it, it's, an, it's really an oxymoron, <laughs> but like, I, I think that, but I mean, I think. Um, but what yeah, I, but I mean, I think what I'm, what I was trying to work through is it's kind of like the whole Me Too thing, right? Like, you know, one person told their story, and mm-hmm. then everybody else was like, "Oh well, I'm going to tell my story." Me too. Me too. This happened to me too, and that caused or that created a kind of awareness and some kind of change, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. is that part of the reason that you know she's doing that? Is there just now a culture of like? if I come out and say this, particularly as a celebrity with somebody who as, you know, who has, um, who has like social cloud and lots of followers and influence, is that then going to encourage other people? And is that dangerous? Mm. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think you hit it on the head, right? Chrissy Teigen has a lot of privilege. So she gets to say, I had an abortion. One, because she lives in California, she's rich, she's famous. Nothing happened into Chrissy Teigen, right? And this actually ties into kind of what, well, the Me Too movement, but also something that um, Brendan just said that sparked something in me. Right? We have to also be really aware of this, this particular cultural moment that what we're going to see is a lot of, not just white, but just like the celebrity of reproductive justice culture creating what I would think of as like really a fourth wave. This is what the white feminists do with waves, right? They create a fourth wave of reproductive justice or just feminism or feminist rights, when black feminists have been doing this work the whole time and there's been there have been no waves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we should have been, or black feminists would articulate a reproductive, a key reproductive justice moment is like the death mm. of Trayvon Martin, not when Roe v. Wade was overturned. So 
I think there's a lot of cultural piggybacking. I see a lot of like my work being regurgitated right now by white journalists. Like I, there was a huge, <laughs> I'm getting a little salty, but there was a huge, like, oh, no, I really, oh, no. like the ocean, be the ocean girl. <laughs> there was, I know no other way. Um, so <laughs> there was um, like a really well-known white woman journalist who had basically verbatim the, the article that um, for Rewire News that I, that I published that Brendan just mentioned um, almost like some paragraphs, like word for word about period tracking apps that went viral um, after Roe v. Wade. Um, and so it's a lot of like, hey, you know, it's just, again, just black feminists are doing these, this work first and now it's being popularized because it's a spectacle. Um, but I think people like Chrissy Teigen too have an opportunity to give lots and lots of money to bail black women out who again are in jail right now for having abortions who are having GoFundMe, there are GoFundMes for people right now. You, you could put in the show notes for people who just want to raise money so that they can buy their kids school clothes because they're not living at home anymore because they're in jail. Mm-hmm. And so about the erasure, I'm always worried about the erasure, but yeah, black women who have just have been in jail and have been prosecuted for like for their reproductive rights not being upheld. Well, Chrissy Teigen gets to like put a feather in her cap. Yeah. Be like, look how real I am. TM. Real TM, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think I remember you tweeting about your article being stolen. Um, and That's wild. it's just, I'm so sorry that people are like this. Um, and, but what you said about like black feminists been doing this work been ringing the alarm, been saying we need to expand what we fight for, for reproductive justice um, and reproductive freedom for all people, but especially black people. It made me think about how, um, right, this this focus on abortion, as, as Roberts, Dorothy Roberts says, right, it's actually something that is very white, right? This focus on access to abortion as being this kind of white affluent issue, um, where actually, if we were to take on the experiences of black women, right, black birthing people, we would actually be able to expand the fight for reproductive justice. And, um, <laughs> Alyssa just kind of made this quip at the end of just like, you know, we, we don't know why people don't want to expand rights for everyone. Why would <laughs> like, why wouldn't you want to do that? Um, and so I was just, I was just saying that as like an aside, but I would like to ask you, like, in addition to donating to GoFundMes for people um, who are mothers who are unable to like, provide for their children because they're in prison for doing, um, for exercising their reproductive unfreedom, I guess we could call it. Uh, what other things would you recommend for people to do um, that are trying to push against these systems? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm a bit pessimistic about like the systems TM, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, because like here we are 2022. I just don't know what can be done. I think on a very individual or a community level, um, I think the best exhibitions or actions that reproductive justice is like what the type of like camaraderie and family I have. You, Brendan, is, you know, like, I moved to Baltimore, I'm a single black mom, I don't have any family there, right? So 
Brendan's the person that comes to take my kids, right? If I can't pick them up from school, I think that's huge, right? Like access to childcare, access to free childcare, access to just community in general. Um, I think it's also things that people can do. Um, we need more free doula services. And in a very flippant but hilarious uh, phrase of my midwife, she says, a doula ain't nothing but a back rubber. And, and <laughs> like, and I mean that in the best way, right? Because if we think of traditional birthing practices, right? It was one of like the only moments of privacy that enslaved women had, which was that they had like a small cadre of other women around them, if nothing else to learn how birth went so they could help each other birth. Mm-hmm. It was one of the only moments, right, of privacy. And there are moments like that where I think we can recreate that type of circle, right? And that means in all areas of reproductive labor, like, you know, someone who's having a baby, why don't you drop off food for them? If you know someone who doesn't have access to clean water, drop off water for them. Like again, expanding our notions of reproductive labor. If you know a professor who needs a cup of coffee, drop off that cup of coffee. You know what I'm saying? Coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag AU. No, but yeah, obviously money is like really great. I would just like, you know, obviously be weary. I know I don't even need to say this on your podcast, but be weary of donating to really large foundations. And um, if you are going to give money, make sure that it's too really localized. I'm really into like, why are you giving back to communities that you didn't come from, right? There's no such thing as giving back to somewhere that you've never been. So um, giving to communities that you came from (laughs) Um, or just helping, yeah, there are states right now that, there's total abortion bans, right? Making sure that those people have rides. There's Facebook groups and things like that that you can make connections. And, and making sure that peop- that those people have been doing that and anchored in that community for a while and not just posting something on Twitter and saying, if you need an abortion, I will drive you. It's like, you are trying to get us both arrested. Why are you doing this? <laughs> but I, I think those are, I think that's really good advice, like being involved in a regular basis, being involved in community. I think that people after Roe v. Wade was overturned, people were so scared. People were just like, I can't believe that this was happening, that this is happening, what am I going to do? And it's like, if you were involved in the organizing, if you were involved in the movement and you knew what was going on, this wouldn't have surprised you and you wouldn't be so shocked right now. You would be like, I know exactly what I need to do in order to continue living my life in in this unfreedom that we're in. In America. Yeah. Yeah. It hasn't really stopped my work as a abortion doula. <clears throat> I mean, I helped like two people have abortions this, a couple of days after it was overturned. And I mean, I obviously live in Maryland where it's not as punitive, obviously. Yeah. Larry Hogan but... got the... Oh. <clears throat> oh. <laughs> I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Um, I mean, but does it change a lot? No, I mean, like people are still afraid to go. Abortion clinics are still pretty underfunded. They're pretty dingy. Mm-hmm. They smell weird. And there's, you know, triggering episodes of Law and Order still on those little TV screens in the corner. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, like there's just like, it's, abortions gonna are always going to happen. They're always going to happen. Um, and so this is just an opportunity for us to pivot. And again, like you're saying, uh, turn to other forms of reproductive justice work that we can do. Let's recenter talking about clean water, Baltimore City Schools. Let's recenter talking about food justice, right? All of these different things, gun violence. Yeah. And one thing that I saw 
as an opportunity for folks um, at this time is to really get connected with kind of ancestral practices, as you were mentioning, right? This kind of this creating that community around you at birth when your midwife, your doula, your other supporting birthing people around you, um, but also for for people who are kind of, I guess, dependent on period apps and things like that, to think about this as an opportunity to become reconnected to your body in ways that, like, mm-hmm. capitalism in um, technology has, like, disconnected us from our bodies, right? And so for folks who, um, who bleed, who are concerned, like, there are ways to, there are herbal practices, there's other, you know, I... I'd be doing my uh, wild carrot seed oil, but I'm not endorsing that. I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying that I do it sometimes um, <laughs> as, as part of my practice, too, now that um, I'm having sex with someone who could get me pregnant, right? So, like, these are things that I'm... And I'm also tracking my own cycle on paper and, like, just making sure that I keep up with my own systems, right? And and understanding what it means to like be in my own body. And so I I don't know. I saw it not as an exciting, I won't use the word exciting, but I'm like, oh, this is like an opening, right? For us mm. to actually get reconnected to our bodies in ways that this medical system has taken from us. Um and just the the vision of like giving birth with a small community, that to me just seems really exciting. Um, so we like I, I, I don't know I want to encourage that but also encourage for folks who have high risk pregnancies right like we also want to fight for them to be able to have a safe community around them whether that includes medical doctors etc so that they can also give birth and survive it well our word for the day was dispossession and of course your book manuscript is about black maternal dispossession so I just want to hear you chat about that a little bit. What does that mean to you? How are you unpacking that and working through it in your book, the, the concept of black maternal dispossession? Yeah, so we go buy it. We trying to run it up. <laughs> it comes out. <laughs> okay. Go, I have to like go back to my defense. I'm like, Jen Nash asking me like, I'm a legal scholar. Like what is dispossession? Because to me, I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I engage dispossession like on the level of alienation right and and I mean if you want to get freaky with it right natal alienation in particular Orlando Patterson's idea of natal alienation right which is just the originary separation of um a child or a person from their community or from their parent or like the person that's there to take care of the person to whom they belong and replacing that belonging with someone who owns them Mm. And so in the book, I'm looking, I'm always oscillating, right? I think it's, I think this is an air sign thing, right? But I don't think it's useful to only think about like black mothers as like people. Mm-hmm. I think of black motherhood as a social location. I think about it as an experience. I think about it as an institution. And in response to those many forms, I also think about dispossession as, you know, a separation from your mother tongue being dispossessed of your language, being dispossessed of your motherland, and then also being dispossessed of your actual mother or a literal caregiver. Um, and so I think there, dispossession can be an act, but what I'm really interested in, right, is like what happens in that lack, mm. right? The lack that is left over, the vacancy. How do we continue to try to fill that vacancy? Can the void be filled? 
Um, are we always chasing it by reproducing it in other relationships? <clears throat> um, <laughs> We're all coughing a little Not bit. <laughs> yeah. I'm in my throat. Um, therapy. Yeah. Therapy and- on Monday, on Monday night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, just, I just met with LaShawn earlier. He was like, okay. But, um, um, but how much, right, does dispossession, just as much as we have this legacy, we're like, oh, you know, that's the ancestors talking. Oh, that's transgenerational trauma. Yes. And how much is it your shit mm-hmm. from being dispossessed in real time, right, from the things to whom or to what you belong? And how are we reproducing dispossession for other people and acting that out, right? So, again, like, I'm interested in the affected histories. I don't think that always an archive institutional archive right with like insidious archiving practices or say like a traveler's journal from like the 15th century it they just plainly don't they don't articulate the effective histories mm-hmm. right as like roberts writes it'll articulate a monetary loss for the master when a baby dies but no one records how the mom felt mm-hmm. no one recorded that except I think, right, through cultural representations, through visuals and the material work that we create today, when we're all re-triggered, when we see another Black kid dead, right, how does that illustrate what they felt then? How do they speak through us? Mm. And so I just think that, you know, dispossession never left us. It's always here and we're still reproducing it. It's our legacy. Wow. Period. Period. Sadia Hartman wrote that last line, not me. <laughs> we we talked about we talked about that earlier when we defined uh, disposition. Yeah. So it's like yeah, yeah. We page seven, page seven. Lose your mother. <laughs> um, I'm really all up in my all up in my mind. Like wow, yeah. We there are definitely ways that wow we reproduce those things. I mean, of course it's it's cultural. We're learning now that it's also that it can be genetic. Um, with epigenetics and things like that. So we are kind of seeing those those remnants and those leftovers of the past in in our productions today, in our cultural and social productions today. Hey, you got me in my thoughts and my thinking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's where I stay. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and I think one of the... Um, like one of the through lines that I see in in your work and just in this black feminist reproductive freedom, reproductive justice, or insert new word here for, for me, who's like, we, I just, we need to talk about something else. We need to do something else. (laughs) Um, of this kind of incorporation of the affective. And that's something that as an affect, affect, oh, I'm not gonna call myself that affect scholar. Um, someone who reads affect theory. Um, and you know, we're, we're discovering or white people name, namely white men are discovering that, that feelings and how people see your feelings and interpret your feelings matter and how you move through the world. Right. So there's that boom in, in the affective that happened, um, I would say in the last decade or so, right? I think you're really pointing to this, again, black feminists been doing this work, right? And, and the turning to outside of the archive um, and thinking about how can we tell and retell a story that is being told, but is also kind of foretold, um, which is something that Joy James talks about when she talks about um, 
black death being kind of integral to democracy as something that we cannot actually have democracy without having black people in particular black children be you know killed and um one of the lines that she says in the essay i can't remember exactly but i I was like this is a very reproductive justice moment where she's like black parents particularly black mothers not only have to worry about dying in birth, but then have to turn around and be com- and see their child's time as stolen time, right? As if like as long the longest or the length of my child's life, right, is actually stolen time because they're never meant to survive. Mm. And so, one of the things that I think I would love to see more of in Black movements that aren't headed by Black feminists, right, is is this incorporation or thinking of reproductive justice but of course that would require people to let go of the the fantasy that you know black cis men are going to free us and and be our leaders right um or the fantasy that like reproductive justice also does not affect them right so like Mm -hmm. yeah that's just also something that i thought about um i mean i think like an effective reality is how i came to my project and I mean, my dissertation was really me working through postpartum depression that I had after I had my son. So I had, I went to a, like a perinatal support group when I was like nine months pregnant and I was sitting there and I was one of only like two people of color. This is in uh, Maryland. And everyone was just like, I can't wait for my baby. Like, I'm just going to put him in all these things and this is what we're going to do. And I was like, I can wait. I just felt like I wanted my son to stay inside of me for as long as possible. I felt like he might make it till six, might make it till eight, he might make it till 12. Like we all know high profile black children who died at those ages. Mm-hmm. If I was lucky to even birth him safely, mm-hmm. you know? And that was shortly after Tamir Rice's death and murder. And, you know, I was I was basically arrested for lack of a better term by that type of preemptive grief. You know, my son, wasn't held by anybody but me and I didn't mean Sonu we were just buddies you know we didn't leave the house I didn't want anyone to look at him I didn't want to touch him I didn't want to cross the street I just didn't want to expose him to anything and so this dissertation was really me just investigating like you know I can't be the only one who thinks this way I knew type of like clinical terms and you know at the time my therapist was like you're just dealing with this and it'll pass and then my son hit two and I'm like, it's even worse now. You know, it just, it grew exponentially. And so I think in a lot of ways, I mean, so like the book that really like made it clear for me was Dorothy Roberts Kling, The Black Body. And, you know, in the first chapter when she's talking about that woman, Ida, and that's who I mm-hmm. dedicate my book to because, you know, like she fought to keep her child in the field with her and so that she could hear the baby cry um and she could when she needed to nurse them and then a storm came and rain filled the ditch and her baby drowned and they she just they were told to go back to work you know and and like no one knew how she felt and at that time I felt like I knew how she felt or I could feel what she was feeling and so it was just my job to continually investigate not necessarily why I knew the why we felt that way but what we do not necessarily to cope because I don't really operate in that word um, but how we continue to endure and why I choose to, and I chose to have another black child and how, why I want to have more black children. Okay. I wanted, I wanted to ask, um, 
Do you watch The Handmaid's Tale? So I don't watch The Handmaid's Tale um, because currently my um, very highly intellectual repertoire is only including the 90 Day Fiance series. <gasps> um, oh my gosh, we can but be friends. I have... We can be friends. Oh, I know. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm worried about like how deep your, like your, yeah, your investment is because I can go deep. Oh, so I've actually thought about starting a podcast. But, uh, so, um, so have I. Um, so I don't watch, I'm sorry. I don't watch The Handmaid's Tale. Damn. I'm sorry. I don't have anything cute to say about it. Darn. I'm sorry. Darn. No, I was, well, I was just thinking for the listeners out there. <laughs> I know. I, no, but I, I was yeah, just thinking I, the, in the last episode. <laughs> June, she's the main character. She's finally escaped to Gilead, which is the fascist regime that takes over the formerly known as the United States. And she finally escapes. She has a second child she has with her. And um, she's playing on the swing in this most recent episode. And this woman who's like a Gilead kind of follower acolyte in Canada, because now the main character, June, is a refugee in Canada. And they're playing on the swing and she's like, this woman walks up and she's like, you're so lucky that you have a child. You know, you must feel so blessed. You're so blessed. And when she's like, okay, please, you know, thank you. But like back off, she's like, you're a slut. You're a fucking slut. And I'm just like, okay, this is interesting. There's like in, in The Handmaid's Tale, there's like this interesting dichotomy or this, this, split of the mind where people are like wow you're so blessed to have children but at the same time anyone who does have them unless they're like an elite is a slut and I'm like this people think oh wow I'm you know this is happening to white women so I can completely relate but at the same time that's very similar rhetoric that has been used against black women right like oh you have a child that's great and when people don't watch The Handmaid's Tale, it's like a dystopian reality society or a dystopian society where people um, where like fertility rates are down because of like pollution and stuff like that. That's what Dorothy Roberts was talking about. Yeah, she literally calls it a psychic. I don't I don't know if she's used the word split, but she does. She does actually name that it's like an actual psychic process that happens. Right. Where black women <clears throat> are necessarily applauded for having children but under slavery right it's like your survival is dependent upon how you if you birth right and what Mm -hmm. you birth how much you birth right you are so your praise or whatever is that but then at the same time as soon as you cross that threshold right you are um you're now marked as a jezebel and yeah the jezebel yeah you're marked as a jezebel the whore that's in my that's in my uh dissertation Mm-hmm. I mean, black children signify, right? Like you're saying, basically they signify our value mm-hmm. and our ability to produce or make more value. And I'm like, it's the same side of the coin. It also renders us valueless mm-hmm. because we've been sullied. Or if the child was born not for productive means as, um, I mean, now, right? Like in a child slavery sense, of course, um, children born for like, as products but let's say now in a different type of way in a more type of psychic enslavement our children aren't directly born as products they're useless they're futile Mm. right and that's why i think brendan like you traffic in this word but that's why 
you know, it's so useful that we now talk about chattel slavery as the Holocaust, as a Holocaust and as genocide. And we are, I think we're, you know, now like this iteration of the African diaspora experience since enslavement, the afterlife of slavery is like now we are currently in the Holocaust of Black, of black children, right? Just iterating differently now. We're in a new phase of that Holocaust. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want to make it hot, Brendan, but I know that, you know, that is something that, that you talk about with like, there being this like unrealized motherhood in all mm-hmm. black girls who don't make it to womanhood, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to make it hot because I know that's your dissertation topic. <laughs> I mean, you can make it. You can make it as hot as you want because <laughs> you know I'm still working through some of some of what I'm thinking about. But yeah, there's um, and Molly, I liked what you said about sullied. There is something about the imagination. Right. The imagination of motherhood and this projection of motherhood onto black girls who are killed violently um, and black women, young black women who are killed violently. So not just like one girl in Baltimore that I talk about where um, in 2018 she was shot by a stray bullet. And then one of um, it, I was like having a conversation with someone else about it. And she was like, you know, she never got a chance to be a mother. And I'm like, she was, eight, she was what, eight? I think she, she might've been five. She actually might've been five. Like, it's like, why are we thinking about a little girl as, as her missed opportunity of being a mother? And then of course that thought being that if she were to become a mother, she would birth a black son who would then do X, Y, and Z. Right. And we don't tend to mm-hmm. think about black boys when they're killed as pre-fathers right like mm-hmm. oh we've missed out on another opportunity like nobody was saying that about mike brown right they were saying well he never got the chance to go to college right he never got the chance to kind of do this kind of um what i'm what the word i'm borrowing is called self-power right they never got this this chance to ascend through self-power which is something that only um black men can access uh, and so but was that interlocutor of yours black or white mm-hmm. she was black and yeah, she was she was a black mother herself, which I think um, speaks a lot to just like her imaginations of what her utility is um, and what she imagines mm. little girls to be useful for. And I also connected back to just like Angela Davis in, in one of her books writes about the four girls who were killed in the church bombing and says, well, these girls never got a chance to become freedom fighters, right? So why is it that these imaginations for black girls and young black women involve them doing labor, whether that be reproductive or whatever, right? Um, which is not the same uh, imaginings that we have are black men and boys. But the person that I think is really interesting, or two people that I'm also like just really looking at are Breonna Taylor and Corinne Gaines. Because Corinne Gaines was a mother and a lot of the talk about her death and why she was condemned by black people was because she chose not to do the right thing as a mother and survive, right? She chose to fight back. And so what does it mean to always already be vilified? And then like on top of that, not receive the memory that you should in your community because you didn't do the right thing as a mother when as a black mother, you never know when death is going to come right for you or your child. Versus Breonna Taylor, where there was a significant um, reproductive justice 
movement around the fact that she never got the chance to become a mother. Right. Um, and it's like, like that's such a strange thing to stake reproductive justice in, right? It's not, oh, this young black woman never got the chance to live her dreams. It's that she never got a chance to become a mother. And so this projection or imagination of motherhood um, onto single black young women that allows them to retain some type of memory in our national imagination. Because before Breonna Taylor, the only black woman that people could name really was Sandra Bland, was another single, childless, young black woman, right? And so the imagination around her was because she was educated, right? That she could give birth and produce, you know, good black kids. But once you already become a mother, um, like Corinne Gaines, right? Even though Corinne Gaines was educated, even though she was a freedom fighter, whatever, whatever, right? She could never be remembered as someone worth, you know, um, grieving because she was always like, as a black mother, she's always already vilified. So that's it. Well, black, black <laughs> mothers are ba- we're bad subjects, mm-hmm. right? We never, we never behave in like these par- in the paradigms. And so I feel like what's important about that work that you're doing too is like, it just reannounces that question, which is like, wow, can we talk about black women for five seconds? Not talk about their potential, not to talk about like their reproductive status, not talk about what they could have been or what they just, what the, who they were, right? Engage them in like just the level of being. And we can't because we don't really think they deserve to be in the first place, right? Like where's the paradigm for black women? Not black mothers, just black women in general. Can we iterate them outside of just their reproductive status, their reproductive potential? I don't know if they can, right? It goes back to like what I was thinking about value. Yeah. Because we don't see the value in yeah. that. And or we mis or misbehaving. We misbehave as subjects. We misbehave as subjects. And like the the beginning point of all of that being this kind of the partis sequitur ventrum, right? This moment in in the singularity of chattel slavery that defined a black person with a uterus as someone who must be a, a breeder. Um, and so just, yeah, like essentially that chapter in my dissertation, just thinking about the legacies of that, um, not just for the living, but for the dead. Like, what does that allow us to think? Um, and then like, how does our imaginations of the dead constrain the movements that we have, like for the living, right? Um, so... Molly, you know, you and I, we always get on Zoom and talk for hours. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> um, but we are going to say goodbye and okay. you know, wrap it up a little bit and <laughs> wrap this shit up. Um, but this has just been such a pleasure and an honor to sit with you in this way and have you educate us learn us a little bit um learn our listeners a little bit and mm-hmm. just fill this space with so much black just i don't even know what to say just black love black freedom unfreedom all of that so you're so sweet yeah that was thank that, you so much for having oh, no, me i was gonna say that really gave me so i've i have so much to sit with and, and think about and i'm sure that our listeners feel the same as well well thank you for your work thank you for all the labor you're doing with the podcast spreading the good word the good word the good word of the lord 
L-O-R-D-E. <laughs> well, that's all we have for y'all today. Thank you mm-hmm. all for listening. This episode was produced by Alyssa James and Brendan Tynes and, and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council, the Heyman Center Public Humanities Graduate Fellowship, and donations from listeners just like you. Yes, thank you all for your support. If you like this episode, please share it via social media, WhatsApp, or loudspeaker. We would love to hear what you have to say about this episode, so be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. For transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or become a patron, to access exclusive content, because we're about to have a conversation about 90 Day Fiance right after this, and we'll probably put it on Patreon. Visit our website, zorasdaughters.com. Where can people find you, Molly? Oh, people can find me on Twitter at doctor underscore reprojustice. And then I have a semi-professional Instagram that's at protective black motherhood. I like semi-professional. I like I like the implications of that. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan's face right now is like... <laughs> You know, we know what goes on the gram, honey. Uh, (laughs) Last but not least, remember that we must take care of ourselves and each other. Bye. Bye. You can say bye, too. Oh, I can say bye? Bye! (laughs) Bye!